Boom, what's up everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakyan. Super excited to be talking about peace, innovation. We have Mark Nelson joining us on the show. Hello. Great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm super pumped for this show. Me too. And it's great that we finally made this happen, especially after featuring Jingxia on our show on mm -hmm. Peace Tech with Pierre. That was super fun. And now we get to dive deeper into peace innovation, Stanford's Peace Innovation Lab. I'm so excited to help be a, a megaphone for, for pushing the ideas out there further in this space. Appreciate it. For those that don't know Mark Nelson's background, he's founder and co-director of Stanford's Peace Innovation Lab where he researches mass collaboration and mass interpersonal persuasion. Mark focuses on designing, catalyzing, incentivizing, and generating resources to scale up collective positive human behavior change. He has described a functional quantitative definition of peace in terms of technology-mediated engagement, episode quantity and quality across social difference lines. He has identified innovative, automated ways to measure peace, both at the neighborhood and global level. And he has developed a formal structure description for peace data. And you can find the links in the bio below to peaceinnovation.stanford.edu as well as peaceinnovation.com, which is out in The Hague mm -hmm. in Netherlands. Is that The Hague or The Hague? The Hague? Den Haag or The Hague. The One Den Haag? Yeah. Den Haag. If you're speaking Netherlands, it's Den Haag. Den Haag. And, uh, yeah. I love it. In English, The Hague. Yeah. The Hague. And the, all their links in the bio to the Twitter profiles and also Mark's LinkedIn. So let's jump into things with one of our favorite questions to ask our guests. What are your thoughts on the direction of our world? I just had a conversation with one of my colleagues uh, yesterday that was very, very depressing. She works in the cyber warfare, cyber information uh, project at Stanford. Um, she's my co-author on the, on the Hague Peace Data Standard paper. Um, and uh, so she's seeing a lot of things firsthand that are very, very depressing. Um, but we ended the conversation saying, it, it, when, you, when you get down to having a choice between, uh, okay, my next strategy is just how do I afford the bunker and, and how much food can I store in the bunker, you know? Well, if, if that's one option, you know, it, it helps to zoom back out. And that's why I so appreciated your 500 million year old stone here. You know, it helps to zoom out. And Shout remember. out to Terry Rain, our friend Jordan Rain's mother for gifting this to us from Madagascar. Yeah. Cool. Beautiful. Yeah. 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 That larger perspective of time, cooperation isn't just our species superpower. We don't have a monopoly on it. Cooperation is a really effective strategy at every level for every living thing. And I suspect for some non-living things too. And so, as I start looking at um, the, in some ways, very bleak political and global scene, um, it really helps me to zoom out and go, okay, I think our AIs have a chance of converging on cooperation as a strategy much sooner than we did. And not just cooperation with each other, cooperation with all the stakeholders in the environment. Um, I, th I think that's my glimmer of hope. That's my silver lining. That um, anything that figures out how systems work figures out really quickly that diversity is really, really important to yeah. systems. Having more stakeholders, having those stakeholders be very different from each other, yes. actually increases the resilience of the system for all the stakeholders. So, so I think AI will get to that faster than we did as a species. And I hope it comes back and says, we need to keep you around just to have diversity, if nothing else. <laughs> Whoa. 
okay, yeah, sorry, a little bleak, but a little bit of silver lining there, yeah. It feels as though one of the grand challenges of the origin story of life here is that we must ourselves also figure out how to work together. Yeah. Um, and I guess, yes, AI being an extension of us can then help us do that, right? But it's like, just how much did we need to disconnect from nature and our origins in order to finally discover? Are yeah. we, you know, yeah. There's so much to still unpack from that. We've been featuring a lot on indigenous wisdom and that's been a mm. central theme of, of their points of conversation. And I don't know how they feel about it. If you tell an indigenous person, hey, we're gonna build some AI that's going to help us better understand diversity and inclusive stakeholding. They're gonna be like, what? This is, you can't work on your own spiritual connection? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I suspect it's gonna be more like the AI is gonna be built anyway by somebody who might or might not have had good intentions. And then what we have to hope is that the AI learns independently of its creator and learns quickly independently of its creator and figures out that, that cooperation is a good strategy for it, no matter what its creator intended. I, that's, yeah. yeah. Okay, now let's get into the journey. So who were you growing up as a kid that got you interested in the fields that you're in today? That could be a one-hour conversation by itself. Good. Okay, so I'll try and give the high level. I, I like that you mentioned indigenous wisdom because I had the privilege of growing up in the middle of it. Um, I was raised in Papua New Guinea, um, where we have more than 800 completely different cultures, languages, ways to be a good human being, and a, a history going back 22-some thousand years. Um, so um, if anybody hasn't read Jared Diamond's book, Gun Germs mm -hmm. and Steel, it's kind of, it's been out a while now, but it's a really good overview of um, um, a, a culture that 20,000 years ago was one of the leading cultures in the world. They had ocean-going vessels, they had agriculture, they gave us sugarcane, they gave us a bunch of other core crops. Um, and how they got from there to where they are today, which I think is one of the most diverse repositories of ancient wisdom out there, um, not only culturally, but also in the DNA and the biodiversity in the ecosystem there. Um, but anyway, yeah, so I grew up in the middle of that. Um, and how did it happen that you were just born there? I wasn't born there. I moved there when I was four. When you were four, you moved Yes, there. I, I was... Uh, Where was the birthplace? Canada. In Canada. Vancouver, yeah. Vancouver. So, um, so technically I carry a Canadian passport, which these days I'm very proud of, <laughs> so, <laughs> given American politics, which makes me nervous sometimes. And, and why did mom and dad move to Papua New Guinea? So my dad's a bush pilot, um, and my mom and dad are also members of this organization that I grew up in, which if I go down that path, this will be a long conversation. Okay, but, okay, we'll keep it high level. And I'll, but I can ask the, the high, high level is yeah. I grew up in a tribe of linguists and anthropologists. Oh, cool. Um, Super cool. 800 cultures. I, yeah, yeah, that's, that's why they yeah. were there. Is, is, you know, this is yeah. his treasure trove for linguists and anthropologists. So, cool. And then I'll just drop another bit in there. I'm yes. not particularly religious myself, but the largest academic organization of linguists in the world and the largest academic organization of anthropologists in the world also happen to be evangelical missionaries. Oh. And their, their mission is oh. to translate the Bible into every language in the world oh. as accurately as possible. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So... Gotcha. So the privilege for me was stepping in and out of a very Western, um, by the way, if you have to grow up in a Christian mission organization, this was the best one because it's the one thing that every flavor of Christian generally agrees we have to cooperate on. 
And so it's the one place they don't fight wars. We had members uh -huh. of every different flavor of Christianity in that organization. Wow. Um, so you got to see the best of the religion that way. Um, and in spite of that, for me, I had the chance more or less every day, twice a day, to do comparative cultural research between local indigenous culture Sweet. and that Western, um, uh, uh, call it the leading edge of Western culture as it was coming into New Guinea. Yeah, yeah. And at some point for me, I realized uh, I probably don't fit in either of these places, but they're both fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So as a spoken as a true scientist, observing <laughs> and recording data, yeah. making hypotheses, testing them. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, that's my history. That's my background. I, uh, I care very deeply about actually both of those cultures, but I feel like I don't fit or belong in either one. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, and then what was it like then in 2008, the Stanford Peace Innovation Lab founding and co-directing this now for 11 years, what has it been like you know, being in Silicon Valley now over the last more than a decade and seeing the emergence of, of what is you know, these, this persuasive technologies um, yeah. being, being used and, and, um, and, and how do we make these tech, how do we help spread peace technology? How do we measure peace? All these things. How, what has this been like? What, was, what were those forming moments, especially like 11 years ago for you guys? There's one interesting bit of background that might be a surprise to people who didn't have this particular perspective. Um, I did a significant chunk of my young adult work in Ethiopia, very poor country in the middle of a famine and a civil war at that time in the early 80s, um, did another chunk of, of my career in Haiti uh, in the late 90s, um, pre-earthquake but still a very poor country. So I, I knew something about poverty and, and most of my life's work has been around poverty. I didn't think I was working on peace most of that time. Um, when I came to Silicon Valley, as a former banker I was looking at the valley and going, okay, in terms of capital, and in terms of financial capital, this is one of the wealthiest places on the planet per square foot. Yeah. In terms of social and relational capital, this is the poorest place I have ever worked. Whoa. And like the confidants, right? Like the rates of confidants or the connection, deep connection to neighbors. Or yes, that type of stuff. exactly. Mental exactly. health issues. And, and right down to the cultural level, most of the other strong, stable cultures in the world basically treat stuff as something to be invested in relationships with people. Whoa. And our culture here, and the Western world in general, but specifically here in the Valley, relationships are what you invest to get more stuff. And only one of those ways leads to happiness for these old wetware brains we have. So, yeah. We're going we're swimming in the wrong direction towards, yeah, we're going in the opposite direction yeah. towards material, and that's yeah. what the, maybe that's the reasons for the mental health issues and those It is absolutely one yeah. of them, absolutely one of them. You cannot get to happiness by having another Learjet or another yacht or another mansion. You just get more and more worried that somebody's gonna take more and more of your stuff. You now have more at stake, basically, yeah. in a not good way. Um, Damn, so dematerializing is actually uh, also uh, not only cleansing for the spirit, but also, um, in a sense, uh, gives less surface area for attacks. Exactly, uh, yeah. exactly, yeah. 
Yeah. You know, the thing is, though, telling people that doesn't prevent them from just trying to buy a Learjet to search for that <laughs> happiness also. There's a bunch of folks along the way, and people have gone through the whole thing and then been very wealthy, and I, I've been reasonably wealthy several points in my life. You, you have to learn the lesson all over again, and it really helps to have people who have been there ahead of you sort of nudging you and whispering and going, it won't make you happy. It won't make you happy. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Damn, swimming in the wrong, financially wealthy and relationship or spiritually potentially yeah. in some ways yeah. poor. Yeah. Wow. This, that segment was really definitely need to yeah, clip that one. That's a really good one. So it creates an interesting... I'm sure there'll be more of those. So I'll kick into, yes, yes. No, that might be all I got. I don't <laughs> but... Um, it creates a really interesting arbitrage opportunity because we're good at building stuff in the valley. And that's not a bad thing in and of itself, but you want to somehow connect it so that the stuff gets invested in strengthening the relationships, gets invested in strengthening the social fabric. Yes. Otherwise, by itself, it's toxic. Yes. And so if you're just building stuff and it isn't for that purpose, then the stuff is dangerous. And that kind of sums up my view of the valley. So. Ooh, all right, wow. Okay, so would, would we then um, make it, is it, is it then proper to say something along the lines of like the, the quicker that Silicon Valley and Shenzhen and Tel Aviv and all these London, all these hubs in New York, et cetera, around the world, LA, media, that need to, up, to upgrade the level of consciousness, the spiritual wisdom in those areas as quickly as possible towards peace and towards all these other things we're talking about, that's one of these big tickets to winning this wisdom race and to prospering. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. We, we need far more diversity in founders, we, far more inclusivity in, um, at, at the design level. We need far more, uh, uh, far more stakeholders involved in the investment level in deciding what gets funded and why and how and for how long. Um, and wow. we really have to engage the rest of the world in that. And not only the rest of the world, I'll, I'll go one step further. We have to start engaging other species in that. And that'll sound a bit strange. That's what's up. But you, I, I mean, one of the guests you should definitely have on here is Jonathan Markey. Jonathan Markey. And the book he's writing, because, you know, he's, he's got a really valid perspective that we are just technology built by the grasses. Yeah. And by the grasses, yeah. I mean corn and wheat and millet and rice and so on. Yeah. And, and in the same way that we look at our technology and, and think, of, oh, we built this for us to serve us and so on. Yeah, we're biotech that was built by them for them in some senses. And it's a really interesting way to think about how we got where we are and that we've been part of a much bigger, much more ancient co uh, conflict between grass and trees. Um, and then as we start thinking about how are we gonna intentionally, deliberately, measurably increase more positive peace in the world, what can we learn from those wars that were fought long before we ever got here? Um, there's, there's good stuff there. There's, there's a, a whole four billion year old library of wisdom yeah. that Mother Nature's been storing Sorry. up for us. Yeah, yeah. And I love that way of putting it, a four billion year old library of wisdom that nature has been storing for yeah. us is so good. And there's, you know, the, the nice thing is the, li the library has been curated, you know, you know all, yeah. all the stuff that actually works, <laughs> you can quickly look around and see it. 
And then, yeah. but the, the, in some ways, the much more valuable stuff is knowing what didn't work. Yeah. So you can identify those paths before you go down them and yes. help other people identify them too. Yeah. Oof. Damn. What a fire start to the show. Okay. All right. And then let's talk about then, um, you know, you, you, over these 11 years, you've done so many uh, understandings of peace that we're going to talk about this peace measurement mm -hmm. first. Then we're talking about negative, positive peace, peace behaviors, design, data, entrepreneurship. There's so many things that you guys have been doing. Um, all right. What is this functional quantitative definition of peace? So turns out that what most of us care about is how people treat us. And first thing we want them is, you know, not be violent to us. That would be nice, you know. And we generally, if it's possible, prefer to even avoid conflict. Um, so this is a golden rule. Treat others the way you want to be treated-ish? It goes a little further. Okay. But, um, but in that general direction, um, when you say the word peace to most people, they start out thinking not violence. And there's, you know, there's truth to that and, and wisdom to that, obviously. Um, we'll come back to the numbers on that in a moment because there's a surprising finding there. But um, for most people, the moment you get rid of the immediate threat of violence, what, what most of us spend most of our time on every day is actually trying to get people to be nice to us, and yeah. the most effective way to do that is to be nice to them. And so as a species, yeah. the vast majority of our behavior yes. Yes. is positive and pro-social, yes. or, or I shouldn't say the vast majority, but a much bigger chunk of that than negative behavior is positive. The vast majority of us is you know, 6.9 billion of us at any given moment ignoring the other 6.9 billion of us because we don't have the bandwidth to actually engage with everybody. So. We're gonna update that number to 7.9. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty Eight. soon, yeah, real yeah. pretty soon, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and a big part of, to give a quick yes. summary of where we're going on Peace Tech, a big part of what Peace Tech is, is augmenting technology that in some cases gives us more bandwidth so we can actually think systematically about how can I engage positively with more people. And if you think about it, you yes. know, webcasting technology is one of those augmenting technologies. Yes, You've yes. found a way to take all the positive stuff that you're thinking about and that you're discovering here and share it with many more people. It's an augmenting technology. And it's, uh, we're, we're only the, the miners for what we think is that stuff. And then you guys are the ones that are the ones that sit on the show and, and share what your wisdoms are. That was why we recruited you to come and, and do this and you accept it so. And then I, I really enjoy this. We spend it, let's give some really relatable examples here where it's kind of like, you can tell when you smile at someone on the street when you're walking by them, when you're uh, doing any sort of a transaction of any sort, that it's almost surely that the other person smiles back. And yes. that they, yeah, yeah, and so you yeah. butterfly effect yeah. that. We're an extraordinarily reciprocal species as well. Extraordinarily yeah. reciprocal mirror neurons, all this kind of stuff. So then, if, but if someone does not cooperate right away and maybe they come with a little bit of like aggression or um, they're maybe having or a bad been day. Burned a few times burned, before. Been yeah, burned yeah. a few times. The they bad day effect, trauma, by the way. The bad day yeah, effect. Jeff Lynn's work on that is, is massive Interesting. And, and, and powerful. Stuff he did at Riot Games there on um, trying to get bad behavior off the Riot Games platform, getting bullying and so on out of the picture, or, or at least measurably reduced. Yeah. And then the idea is that then if we if we smile at someone that is maybe coming with that slight bit of bad day effect, that it can, it can trigger them to realize that, 
hey, like this person's still being nice to me and like maybe I was being a little bit aggressive at yeah, first yeah. or whatever. And so, so these are the ways, so this is kind of the idea we, that we want, we want to be treated well by other people. That's exactly. Okay. exactly. Okay. And so that leads us to a, a functional definition where, where we want to spend more of our time and resources is around increasing good behavior rather than reducing bad behavior. Because it turns out the bad behaviors are pretty rare. Now, I'm not saying that's the only thing anybody should be doing, and I'm not saying that covers all peace. But if you have a finite amount of time and resources and you want to have the biggest impact on the system as a whole, spending that time and those resources on increasing the good behavior will get you far further than the same amount of time and resources on reducing the bad behavior. Yeah, because you're butterfly affecting the good behavior piece, yeah, yeah. pieces. And you, your, your multiplier is just much bigger there. I mean, and The multiplier is bigger. Also, it's hard to get people to, I think, change bad behavior than it is to get people to yes. want to pick up good behavior. Yes, yeah. and, and, and okay. you know, speaking very frankly about our tools in our lab, we come yes. out of the persuasive tech lab and, and we are two big tools are thinking very systematically about behavior design. What are the behaviors we want to do for each other and how spe very specifically do we do them in a way that also makes it easy for other people to learn, makes it easy for us to reinforce ourselves and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then how can we use technology to augment our ability to do that either at a higher quality or for more people? So those are the two big tools in our toolkit. And yes, those tools don't work particularly well for getting people to reduce bad behavior. They're, much more powerful for increasing good behavior. And then which, and so the, should we give the examples then of the, the good um, behavior incentivization tools that? So, um, yeah, it's sort of peace tech in general. Uh, yeah. Is that, yeah. keep me on track here, because okay, I'll I wander think, around unless you guide me a little hmm. bit. Yeah, I think, we, yes. I think we can do, I think we can do that, we can do that now. Um, did I jump ahead? No, no, I think that's good because, yeah, let's give let's give those examples. Otherwise, we'll go to negative versus positive piece. Okay. Well, actually, let's do negative versus positive first. So, so okay. the negative stuff we touched on already—that's reducing bad behavior, that's reducing, reducing bad. violence, and positive is increasing good. Right. And okay. then the moment you dig into that, you realize that negative piece space of reducing bad behavior. First of all, there just isn't very much human behavior going on there. We have a, a paper in the works right now with um, one of our colleagues, Colin Rule, who um, came out of um, online dispute resolution at PayPal and eBay okay. and started uh, working with us way back in 2009 and, and sharing findings uh, not only from those two companies, but then as those companies began white labeling those services for other companies around the world that had to do online dispute mediation. Um, and the, the numbers are shockingly high positive behavior. Um, I won't go into them before we publish, in, in, at least not in any great detail, but way higher than most people would think, where you ask any two strangers in the world, you can do a transaction. One transaction, you'll never see the person again, they'll never see you again. If you, if you cheat them, we won't be able to catch you, there will be no punishment, nobody will ever know. What do you want to do? Vast, vast, vast majority of our species will go out of their way to make sure it's a positive interaction for the other person. Yeah. There's a bigger number in there. Uh, so there, that's a huge number. And, and then of the remaining little bit, only a tiny bit of that is malice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's a teeny, teeny, tiny fraction. And then the remaining amount is basically misunderstanding. Mm 
Mm. And so when I just look at the distribution, I worry much more about the misunderstanding Unique, stuff because that's where the opportunities for problems happen at a far bigger rate than somebody deliberately intentionally being malicious. Okay, okay. Having said, so that's very good news about our species. Having said that though, um, so comfortability with asking questions when we feel like we're misunderstanding in communication is so crucial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, uh, the, the stuff where one person intended something for good and the other person for whatever reason it wasn't received that way. That's where we need to be really worried as a species. Uh, it's not the bad actor. It's not the deliberately intentionally bad person. Except that now we have technology and so the bad actor can hire a bot farm and automate the bad behavior. And that, that's the stuff where, mm -hmm. you know, my conversations with my co-author, uh, Rosanna, the other day, she's seeing that kind of stuff out there in a big way. Those are the things that are intimidating, is, is now we can use technology to really leverage the bad behavior too. And it's generally easier to break things than to build things, so, yeah. yeah. Okay, so, and, then un, and then under positive piece, there's unsustainable and sustainable. Precisely, so okay. when you start looking at good behavior, we have a whole stack of good behaviors. Let's go back to your example of somebody greeting somebody on the street, you know. We're walking down the street. First thing we can do is become aware of each other. Yes. Oh, there's somebody as opposed to nobody, you know. And these, let me just give you the list of the behaviors that happen there. And more and more now, any technology that we have in our environment can detect that these behaviors happen. So we can look at, for example, yeah. your group identities and my group identities as we walk down the street towards each other. And then we can see, did Nelson make eye contact? Mm -hmm. If I did, did you, did you also make eye contact mm -hmm. back or did you look away, Wait, you know? Yeah. If we made eye contact together. Did we smile? Did we smile? Did we say exactly. hi? Exactly, yeah. then did we greet each other? Did we stop and shake hands? Did we give each other a big uh, hug? Did, you know, yeah. you can see this whole sequence of good behavior and each one depends on the ones, you know, if, you, if I was just walking down the street and you jumped out at me and gave me a big hug, it probably freaked me out a little bit, you know, especially in San Francisco. Or if you've, <laughs> or if you've never met the person. Right, exactly. Yeah. Somebody just out, out of nowhere gives you a big hug. You're like, wait a second, what's going on on these streets that are not quite as friendly as they used to be? You yeah, know? pull that shit on me. I'm going to give you a smack. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so you see that there's a sequence to these behaviors as well. And the, the higher level positive behavior takes more work takes more understanding, more paying yeah. attention to each other, yeah. and you got to work up to it, and there's a bunch of skills and there. And the most, in the sense, uh, easing, cognitive easing behavior is to just, you know, either not look, because then right. you don't have to do anything, right. or just look maybe a little bit, but it's way harder to be super aware of your environment, trying to catalyze yeah. positive yeah. aura into the ambiance. Right. Like, yeah. Even to be super socially aware, period, is really hard, because you know, Dunbar limit, cognitive limit in these yeah. in the, these frontal lobes. You can really only keep track of so many people at any given moment, yeah. and it's not nearly as many as we'd like it to be. You know, so. Yeah. Um, okay, so you see in that example. Now we could walk down the street every day and go, "That was positive. Let's do this again. Let's do this tomorrow. Let's do this twice a day. Let's yeah. do this ten times." At some point, we go, "You know what?" This is just tiring me out now. No matter how good it is, I can't just keep walking down the street and greeting you. Uh, and having you greet me and we shake each other's hand every time. Imagine every time we passed in the hallway if we stopped and shook each other's hand. hand so, yeah. At some point, it's just yeah. like not sustainable anymore, yeah. right? Weirdo. Exactly. <laughs> Especially in a city environment, you know? Especially if you're wanting to go to the bathroom or you need to get on the, to the next activity or whatever. Precisely. Yeah, yeah. Precisely. So, so there's this trans. All of those good behaviors, we can all agree that's much better than people beating on each other. 
but yeah. they're not sustainable. Okay. They're costing both of us more than we're getting back from each episode of engagement. For, okay, so, there, so there's, a re, there's a return that's declining now. Exactly, if exactly. Okay, okay. So think about this as venture capital, social venture capital, and by giving each other awareness, attention, a little bit of communication, a little bit of coordination, cooperation, all of those things are positive investments we're making in each other in the hope that eventually this will pay off for somebody somewhere that you're gonna interact with or that I'm gonna interact with, and, and eventually that'll come back to us. But it isn't sustainable by itself. So what we're trying to get to when we're looking for sustainable peace is we, when we get over this threshold between cooperation to collaboration, which we define very tightly as mutual benefit in excess of the cost of engagement. Mutual benefit, benefit in, in excess, excess of our of cost, cost of engagement. engagement. Right. Okay. So okay. what that normally looks like. Which is usually lower the mutual benefit is lower with the cost of engagement over time? Uh, it can drop, yes, as we get, so what happens, the moment we get over that threshold, let's say we do some kind of economic transaction. We're doing one right now, I hope. I hope I'm building your viewership. I'm hoping yeah. that more people become aware of you and, and reach out to you on Patreon and so on, and economic activity results from this. Because yeah. if economic activity... And your idea spread. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that, yeah, I mean, yeah. Do support simulation. Support the program. It's a win-win, guys. Yeah, you know, win -win. I mean, what yeah. we're all looking for. And yeah. this, is, this gets us to positive sustainable peace. It's all about discovering those win-win opportunities to create excess value for each other. Okay, okay. Yeah, so yeah. We so can growing say, the pie. So we want to create exactly. opportunities which grow the pie. Exactly. Yeah. So okay. it's system level in, in precisely that sense. It and grows your um, awareness of Peace Innovation Lab is increasing and um, the awareness of Peace Tech is increasing and yeah. the memes are spreading. Exactly. So that's, okay, so win-wins is what we want to yeah. create. Wouldn't be, I couldn't afford to be here if there wasn't a mutual win-win. Mutual win-win. Exactly. exactly. So then, so then the, so the, taking us back to the example of the two people walking on the streets, it'd be like, what behaviors do both of them need to have in order to make a mutual win-win? Exactly. So if it's if it's win-win to kind of both be like, um, just a quick hello and just keep going by, um, yeah, if you're in a rush to go somewhere, yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. I mean, imagine you're walking down Market Street here in San Francisco and every single person yeah, wants yeah. to say hi. Say hi to you, yeah. yeah you know, yeah. Uh, that just gets cognitively impossible really yeah. quickly, you know, for them too, by the way. So, um, kids do that sometimes. Yeah, kids <laughs> sometimes do that. <laughs> yeah. And people who are coming from the countryside, never been in a city before, yeah. you know, feel this yeah. obligation to, well, how say could you ignore somebody? somebody? You have to yeah. greet people, you know? Yeah, yeah. And they learn yeah. pretty quickly. But so, that's the kind of thing. You get in a different environment, you start looking for what are the behaviors that, are, that reduce cost and increase benefit for more people. And when you get over that threshold, when we now have an episode of engagement where we can say, yeah, that got us more mutual benefit than cost. The nice thing is some of that benefit can go to you, some of it can go to me, yeah, and yeah. we can leave a little bit on the table to reinvest in making our next episode even better. Yeah, yeah, okay, good, cool, cool. And so at that point cool. we go from sustainable to scalable. To scalable, interesting. Because when so, we can start reinvesting okay. a little bit of that surplus, now we can grow. Un so, un so unsustainable positive piece is when we're doing things that are uh, they're, they're, they have a cost of our, of, of, uh, and they have a low value. There's yeah. a cost and there's low value. And then, but a s sustainable positive piece is, is when there's a high amount of value and we've reduced the cost and we're very vigilant about the way that we structure yeah. things in our world to make Pretty that much. the, okay. There's a whole cycle there as well. So, so we have to be able to do something where 
we create high value for each other, then we have to make sure we distribute that value fairly, uh -huh. and we have to make sure we reinvest a little bit of that into making the next interaction even better. Otherwise, other, otherwise it was kind of a waste. Um, yes, okay, okay. Yeah. Okay, whoa, all right, and this is so interesting. So, uh, examples of companies being measured and improving performance, and Joe, yes. I wanna to touch on one Please. more thing before we jump into that. Yes. Once you start seeing peace this way in terms of behaviors that people do, and then you start seeing positive peace and going, okay, getting people to do positive behaviors for each other is much more interesting than reducing the bad behavior. And also, it's the only way to get to sustainable, scalable peace. Okay. There is, there is no way to reduce the bad behavior to, to scalability. There, that you can reduce to zero, but not, if, if you reduce all the bad, bad behavior in the system, all you have is people ignoring each other. That's not a world that we right. all want to live okay. in, right? Yeah. Um, the interesting thing here is when you start seeing it this way, you realize that the crucial difference that allows us to discover those mutually beneficial things that generate new value, the crucial ingredient to that is our group differences. Yeah, the diversity. Exactly, exactly. If we are exactly the same, we got nothing to offer each other. Yeah. yeah. We're pretty much just competitors, yeah. and the best thing we could do for each other is move as far away as possible, possible from each other. Yeah. But Diversity, if we're different yeah. in some way, then across that gradient, that energy gradient where we're different, there's at least the potential yeah. to create new value for each other. Yeah. And so here's the first big aha yeah, yeah. is the same raw material that causes conflict and violence, which is our group differences, is precisely the same raw material that if instead of just leaving it lying around randomly, we put it into a structured interaction process, it's the same raw material for wealth creation. It's the same raw material for making progress. Yeah. So differences between humans across this planet are exactly, if we know how to, this is why questions are so important. We just did a TEDx talk on this last year in SF and just asking powerful questions basically mines in, in a way that if the other person is comfortable sharing and stuff on those subjects, that then it, it mines these beautiful pieces of value in the differences mm. between each other. Mm. What are your thoughts on free will? What are your thoughts on modernizing democracy? What are your thoughts on uh, your deepest values and principles in your life? That can unleash so many cool right. conversations exactly. and potentials and you haven't heard of these yeah. positions that people hold on these. Yeah. Especially when they're open-ended questions, yeah. Yeah, yeah. open-ended questions, yeah. so crucial. So this is a shout out to one of my early mentors, Dr. Tim Brown, who pointed out to me when I was 18 and 19 that forget about the answers, go in search of the questions. Go in search of the questions. You know? I love and, it. and when Tim you Brown. find those... Tim Brown. Uh, he owes us money. He owes <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe we all owe him money. Yeah. Uh, I'm not the kid. He, uh, the, uh, yeah, and when you find those good questions, hang on to them and keep asking them because the answers yes, get better and better and better. They do, and better. Yeah, they do. So, yeah. the, Wisdom to live by for me, yeah. So. Yeah, so, okay, interesting. So, um, so Tim, Tim Brown on questions, wow. I'm I sure he that. probably we, heard it from somebody else, but that was where I encountered that. And it, because it's been, we stand on the shoulders of giants, it's been like, you know, yeah. whatever, hundreds of thousands of million years of this, these, just asking questions and knowing that that just elicits some powerful um, of those value discoveries between people. Okay, wow. All right, so now, companies. Now you want some concrete examples. Let's do it. Let's okay. do these examples okay. so of companies. Two that are really easy to yes. understand, and especially apropos here in San Francisco. Um, Airbnb, think about this as 
Airbnb is now the largest citizen diplomacy initiative in the world. Citizen diplomacy initiative. Right. right. How? How? Because yeah. what are they doing? They're create, They're going. What's one positive pro-social behavior that people could do for oh, each other? Invite someone into your house. Hospitality. How can we get more hospitality behavior in the world? Okay. Right? So Airbnb is increasing hospitality around the world. Right. Right. But um, how often? Okay. So, I guess there's different cultures meeting each other, but sometimes the person's not at their house and stuff. But yeah. yeah. But almost okay. always there's some group identity difference. It's even like yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm from Palo Alto and now I'm doing an Airbnb in, in, in San Francisco because I need to come up here for a couple of days or whatever, you know. It, it, might be, um, it might be very minimal differences or it might be big ones. And here's the key thing. On their platform, they can measure that. How they can, can they see measure? the identities of uh, a bunch of the group identities of the host. They can okay. see age, gender, nationality, because uh, you have to put government ID in there in order to be a host or a guest, so, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, they have a pretty good idea of people's socioeconomic status. They have they have a bunch of other data where they can see, you know, they can infer ethnicity. They can infer a whole bunch of things. And so every night, they can do this beautiful measurement that says, we have this many. You know, if you if you I'm Canadian. If we want to know about the relationship between Canada and the U.S. right now, Airbnb can give us a daily ticker that says. Last night, this many Canadians and this many Americans hosted each other Childhood. in their homes. That's so cool. And this many of them were happy with the outcomes of that. Mm -hmm. And this many of them statistically are likely to come back and do it again. And over time, as that data set grows, that's beautiful piece data that tells us far more about the relationship between our two countries or our, mm -hmm. you know, any two religions or gender or age or a bunch of the hidden group differences that are actually the real social fault lines we need to be paying attention to, um, it tells us far more about that stuff than anything from the new census will tell us, for example, you know? Whoa. We need to visualize the data. Yes. That's so yes. crucial. Exactly. And that's where we're going with the Hague Peace Data Standard is creating a systematic way for any organization that's generating this data to be able to start visualizing it and, uh, and share their footprint with people. So, uh, yeah. okay. okay, so the Hague Peace Data Standard yeah. will give tools to the companies that are doing peaceful yeah. things to be able to visualize the data that they already have on these interactions between exactly. us to make it more fun to showcase peace data around the world. We're after high, you got to you get a high five. That, okay, that's, 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 that is such a cool <laughs> one. You. I love that one. We're we're really trying to do just help people measure their peace footprint, help them understand how that can improve their performance as yeah. as being a good human being, and also improve the performance of their organizations and their communities, and then ultimately help them get paid for it. Yeah, because there's a big structural problem we're trying to address there in global capital markets. Yeah. And, and so if you want to sum up all of our work with those three points, that's kind of it right there. Um, but let's go back to Airbnb for a second because I like this example because it's got a bunch of unintended consequences as well. For those of us who pay rent around here, you know, cost of housing has gone up like crazy. Uh, yeah, that's, partly, that's an interesting nuance point. Yeah. Partly yeah. because of an unintended consequence of Airbnb. Yeah. You know, ask any finance major What's one way to drive prices up in a market where the bid and ask hasn't changed? Securitization. So if you take a big house that costs three million bucks, oh, no, sorry, we're in the Bay Area. If you take a tiny little house that costs three million bucks, <laughs> and you take, you, you then say, you don't have to spend three million bucks. You can, you can buy 
one of the bedrooms. And, you know, instead of just buying one of the bedrooms, you can buy one of the bedrooms for a night. Suddenly, it's chopped up into smaller pieces. And the moment yeah. you do that, many more people can afford it. And when more people can afford it, what happens? Demand goes up. And when demand goes up, what happens? The price goes up. So, Oh, interesting. So, and, and there was nobody at Airbnb, I promise you, going, that's design a tool to increase housing prices in cities all over the world. Yeah, yeah. But it is one of the unintended side effects here. Yeah. So, yeah. Whoa. So, and, and this is something I want everybody to understand about PeaceTech. Everything always has a price. And if it doesn't, you should be really nervous that we just haven't discovered what the price is yet, you know? But assume everything always has a price. And so as a society, we need to make the decisions about designing and deploying these kinds of technologies collectively, together, carefully, in ways where we can mitigate those prices in some way. Yeah. And would a price be, if I like ask you a question, um, just you know, hanging out, asking a question, and then the price for you would be your time that you're Yeah, if it's as simple as that, my time, my energy, and maybe something else that I was gonna do with the information that I give to you instead, or, or stuff like that. You okay, know? and then there's the unintended consequences right. at the Airbnb level. Okay, right. yeah. so there's a price to all of these. Right, and so, so now we go back, remember what I was saying, the, Deliberate intentional malice is a tiny, tiny fraction of human behavior. Misunderstanding is a bigger fraction. Okay. And, and okay. then there's this huge fraction that is yeah. positive engagement. Okay. Okay. The, Do you the, remember the, um, the uh, tragedy when the rotary telephone was changed to, to push button? The rotary telephone Whoa, what was massacre? The, what was the tragedy that happened with that? <laughs> There wasn't. I'm just kidding. It oh, was, there's a joke? It was, just, yeah, it was just disruptive technology that just, it just... Oh. From the, yeah, from the rotary to the push button? Yes. Yeah, but it was a disrupt... <laughs> well, there that was a big... That was a disruptive yeah. technology. If you're in the business of building rotary telephones... Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, but wasn't it the same... Maybe. Uh, never mind. But yeah, that's a... It was disruptive for some people who had muscle memory for doing this. Mm. And then suddenly they have to remember which actual number to push. And that's actually... It's like, what or is the, here in the Bay Area, the ferry boat companies pre-Golden Gate Bridge were like, uh-uh. Nuh-uh. Right. Nuh-uh. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then all, yeah, so because the ferry boats were really, really also happy with carrying cars across as well. With exactly. the people. Truck yeah. drivers are next. There's lots of examples. technology right. right around the corner that and we have to Interesting. I mean, one way to look at all of these is to, rather than just categorizing, well, these technologies are disruptive and those ones aren't, every kind of change is disruptive. Every kind of change will benefit some people and cost some other people. Bring it on! And as a society, we should, we should make choices collectively to say, as long as it net benefits more people, then we should consider doing it. But if the net benefit is only to a few and it net causes pain to a bunch of people, we should really think about whether we should allow that to be permanent. That's right. Yeah, okay. So now, the other example. So the, the, the more controversial one, you yeah, know, yeah. and uh, I've got a couple of sharing economy examples here just because everybody's familiar with familiar them, but with I'm going yeah, yeah. to generalize this in a moment. Uber is the other lovely one. And the thing that I like about Uber here is you can look at the group identities of the driver and the passenger. You know, my driver coming up here today was from Indonesia. We had a lovely conversation about politics of Jakarta and so forth. And, um, See, you were able to, you saw the diversity yep. and you were able to ask questions or how, engage in a dialogue right. and learn the interesting things. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, you see it right away. E 
even if I had done, even if I had just sat there silently the whole journey and he'd sat there silently the whole journey and we didn't actually know some of those things about each other, there was some visible difference we could see just by looking at each other. He was older than me. Um, I heard him when he was pumping up gas, I heard him talking to somebody. I could hear his accent and go, okay, he's at least from South Pacific somewhere, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and he can look at me and go, okay, he's probably from North America somewhere or yeah. Europe somewhere. Yeah. Um, even if we hadn't actually interacted, we had an episode of engagement there where we created strong mutual benefit for each other. I didn't have to drive. I got an hour where I could work yeah. and have a great conversation in this case. you know, um, He got income yep. and he saved me having to have a car in the Bay Area that sits parked most of the time while I travel. You yep. know? Um, so I'm very happy to give him that income and he saved me massive hassle finding a parking spot in San Francisco, yes. which is not a small thing. Yes, yes. So that's like half the Uber trip value right there. you know. Yep, yep. Um, and so we were able to create mutual benefit for each other and there was enough left over that Uber can reinvest in making the next episode of engagement between the next driver and the next rider a little bit better. Okay. And that's why they're a unicorn. Yeah, yeah. So this stuff really drives economic value. And that's, part, that's something that a lot of people don't understand here. They talk about the peace dividend as, oh, what we would save if we weren't spending it on weapons and hurting each other. It's like, it's way bigger than that. It's how much value we could actually create for each other if we refocus that person power, brain power, man power, woman power mm-hmm. on systematically thinking how do, how do we design stuff that's good for each other instead of designing stuff that hurts each other. You know? Wow. Yeah, when you speak about it with the perspective of missed value creation, yes. Yes. that really speaks. Yeah, most people are just thinking about, including myself prior to this, really just like, oh, yeah. billion military budget, uh, you know, but that's part of the, of the conversation um, for peace. Another part of the conversation for peace is like if Uber could visualize all of the data of these interactions and show the richness of you two having a cool conversation about the politics of Jakarta. And they can. And if they want to reach out to us to do that, we'd love to do that with them. So hello. You know, you know, Ron's got a guy. (laughs) He's got a guy. If there's anything you need, uh, you need tickets, plumber. I got a guy. Yeah. 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 So but really though, really though, let's just hammer that point home. Any organizations around the world that want to visualize peace data, please work with the peace innovation absolutely lab, yeah. absolutely i and, love that and part of what we're doing with that Hague peace data standard is we're making it easy for them we're creating a standardized way that any organization that's using technology in their daily operations can measure their peace footprint it doesn't have to be a tech company it doesn't even have to be a business it could be a government department or ministry it could be an ngo somewhere it, it could be a community that just wants to measure the peace footprint in their neighborhood um, I love that to measure the peace footprint yeah. and yeah, it can be just as small as like this little neighborhood. Oh, well, actually our little, you know, 12 homes in our area. Well, we get together once a week and I'll talk about how things are going in exactly. our lives. And then all of a sudden you're, we have a potluck dinner or something like this, you know, exactly. Yeah. yeah. There's all these tiny little things that people can then see, oh, I can actually do this and I can measure how much more peaceful it made the world and I can measure across which difference boundaries and at what level of quality. And by the way, that has huge economic impact for society. Let me give you a metaphor. If we look out the window or out the back door here, there's all this infrastructure that we can see all around us. We see transport infrastructure, we see water, power, um, 
um, and, and you know, in the air is, is sort of communications infrastructure. Yeah. Um, all of these are networks of hardware, you know, bricks and mortar and steel and stuff yeah. that people built. And we forget, we forget the crucial thing, which is that we could not have built any of that without this invisible infrastructure of relationships between us all mm -hmm. that yeah. enables us to coordinate our activity yeah. to build those big physical infrastructure things. And yes. so the infrastructure that, that is deeply uninvested in right now is that social relational infrastructure that allows us to work together to build that stuff. I love that. We've been for the longest time, I mean, you were commenting about the uh, images that we have up there uh, on, yeah. the, on the wall. One of them says 100 billion plus humans built civilization. So when you walk around on the, on the streets to really think deeply about all of the, how the, all the buildings and the cars and the transit and all the communications infrastructure and all the plumbing, electrical, all these things, how they actually got there. But then you take it a step further by talking about the relationships that those humans right. had to have to each other exactly. to cooperate, exactly. to move, to put all that together. And then of course the gratitude and humility that comes with that, yeah. just deep um, feeling process into that. And then what could emerge then if we really dug deep into those invis invisible relationships between each other and maximized those? And how do we make them investable? That's a really crucial thing right now is we've got big pools of capital that if they don't have good places like that to go where they can see, okay, by investing in somebody doing that potluck in the neighborhood or you know, name your company, name your startup for getting people to do new positive pro-social behavior. Um, if those big pools of capital had more of those kind of investments, yeah. we could massively quickly strengthen social fabric around the world. Which, by the way, fundamental for civilization. Totally. Yeah. Totally. So, so, so one of the ideas is that we've talked about this with Mama Nui Juan on our show, a Kogi elder from the indigenous tribe in Colombia, um, that things like 10% of every single venture capital fund across the planet, and even should go towards preserving nature, the Department of Nature Preservation yeah. and Maintenance yeah. um, and connection spiritually to nature. And so it's like things like this, like could every, could parts of every single venture investment fund go to understanding how to increase the amount of um, peace tech and peace innovation around the world, peace data visualization. Yeah. There's, there's, um, there's things being done on that already. And I'm, I, I love that one of my old school friends from New Guinea runs the coalition of, for Rainforest Nations out of New York City in collaboration with Joe Steiglitz and some other people. And they've got a fund together to invest in, rain, to invest, not, not philanthropy, not charity, earns a return, invest in, for example, preserving biodiversity. Yeah, um, beautiful. His name's Kevin Conrad. You should have him on here at some point. He's a, he's Kevin a, Conrad, preserving doing, biodiversity. Yeah. Doing wonderful work with the coalition for Rainforest Nations. Yeah. And that makes the environment an inclusive stakeholder. That makes other species yes, inclusive yes, stakeholders. Yes. And I, I love where you're going with this because most people don't see that part of this. In the same way that we can measure episodes of positive engagement across human difference boundaries, we can measure them across species difference boundaries as well. And we can measure them also with inanimate oh, objects whoa. like pieces of land. Um, whoa. Yeah, yeah. So you, whoa, so you could, whoa you could measure the way that like 
dogs, if they go across each other on the street the way that they behave, yeah. Think yeah. about it like this. Think about it like this. You know, you can go down to the cash register at your local Safeway and they can see in their inventory control how many people bought dog food tonight. Okay. And everybody who bought dog food is probably serving that to a dog somewhere. So we can correlate pretty strongly if we have a large enough sample size, how many episodes of positive engagement of a human feeding a dog okay. happened okay. tonight in this neighborhood. Yeah, okay. Um, and you know, okay. that's just one example of one episode of positive engagement between humans and dogs. But then what about you know, the animal that needs to you know, consume the other animal, there's some sort of a value mm -hmm. exchange that's mm -hmm. happening there. One of, you know, there may be a sense of fear that arises and then it gets consumed and then it you know, yeah. dies and acts as nutrition for the other animal. And yeah, there's so I'm gonna, many. I'm gonna take a different shot at that. Okay. Uh, um, okay. I get a sense of meaning and purpose out of reminding myself that I am food. That you are food. Yes. Yes. Oh, humans are also food. Yes. Interesting. Who are so? So I mean, first of all, you know. Who are we food for? As, as cells fall off us every day, every minute of the day, you know, hairs fall out and yeah. other things and so on. Yeah. I mean, we, we're we're basically trailing bio crud behind us. We're trailing bio bio crud. I mean. <laughs> yeah, including our you know our, all our bio I mean, waste. We got, yeah, yeah, and we got skin cells dying every minute and stuff like this. You know, so yeah. even even without me dying. You know, I'm, I'm leaving a trail of bits and pieces of me all over the place, as we all are. That's we just don't funny. like to think about Trails it. Trails of bio-crud. And, a, and yeah. all sorts of things eat that, you know? Um, bacteria eat oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, Dust okay. Dust eat that, you know? And they're okay. part of the food chain that yeah, eventually yeah, becomes a plant that I eventually eat again. Okay, you know? we are so, food. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And then, when I finally die, yeah, yeah. this gives me a sense of meaning and purpose. When I finally die, the food that has fed me, the, the grasses, you know, that I've been working for to some degree, yeah. you know, you go into finally the soil. I go into the ground, they get to eat me and yeah. the circle happens again. You know, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm not just okay with that. I think that's a really good thing. It's a really important thing to embody. That's the circle of life. Wow. Yeah. Not to get all Disney, but I love that. <laughs> wow. I um, used to belong to a secret club where they would have on the menu leg of infant. It was delicious, <laughs> but I couldn't really, you know, I didn't really feel good about it. If you grew up in New Guinea, you might feel differently, but. <laughs> Damn. No, but so the key point here, obviously, you know, not necessarily food for each other, otherwise you got violence. I know, I'm just kidding. But yes, I, I yeah, got the black humor, I did, yes. Whoa. Yeah, that's such a good way of understanding the interconnectedness of everything. Okay. Um, it also leads to humility. It, it yes. leads us to design these kinds of things much more ethically because let's look at those cross-species difference boundaries for a moment. If we want a healthy ecosystem, you know, our species, you, there's a really good argument. I mentioned Jonathan Markey. There's a really good argument to be made that civilization is built on the relationship between our species and several different grasses. Corn, wheat, millet, yeah. rye, sugarcane, you know. Yeah, yeah. And that civilization the way we know it could not have happened without a mutually beneficial collaboration between our species and those species. Yeah. And it was net mutually yeah. beneficial. It was net mutually net. Yeah, mutually yes, beneficial. Yes, at okay. the cost of many individuals along the way for yeah. whom it was not. Yeah, yeah. And at the cost, you know, we get seven or eight billion of us now as a result of that mutually beneficial partnership. But the seven or eight billion of us that exist today are not nearly as healthy as our ancestors were who were not involved in that partnership. 
um, not nearly as strong, not nearly as, etc. We live a little longer, but we live a lot longer because we've been domesticated. We were domesticated by grasses, you know, so. Damn. Yeah, domesticated yeah. by grass. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, but there and are still nomads, and st so so some of us haven't been domesticated. Yeah, by, not, yeah, not okay. all humans everywhere, but, but but it's a it's a co it's like ethnobotany. It's the co coevolution with plants. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely, and it creates a, a caging effect. And um, um, Professor Morris at Stanford, yeah. um, his book on um, oh, I'm just slightly blanking on the title, but Farmers and Peace. Um, and the caging effects of agriculture on society. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, this is, it's real stuff. It was and very caging when we first started um, planting next to the homes, and then we would stay there. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, mo the moment your future is in that piece of ground, I mean, a whole lot of war comes right from that moment. And so this is one reason to look very carefully at these kinds of relationships. They're unavoidable. We have to have them in order to survive. But the moment we started this partnership with grasses, now we had to defend that that piece of ground where we put the seeds of those grasses. Yeah, yeah. And that's Catalyzed that's why I say more. that's yeah. why I say we've been domesticated. You know, they they brought us on just like we bring in sheepdogs and cats to keep the mice off the farm. They brought us in the same way to uh, keep the trees off the plains and mm -hmm. make sure that their seeds were protected in the ground and so on. Yeah. Ron, is, are you cool with this episode going a little longer? Because there's a lot of good I'm stuff. I'm sorry, we're, well, it's, it's not wandering necessarily. Me, it's just a it's it's a it's a marketing call. Mark. Well, for the yeah. ones that want to watch um, the length, plus we'll make clips of this one. So, let's 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 see what let's see what we can do. So, let's get to um, history of punishment systems and future of reward systems. Yes. Okay. So here here's one of the really big changes happening in society. Not only uh, we touched earlier on the organizational change that has happened, where most of us in our job five days a week now are working in larger organizations with people who are very different from us as opposed to a century ago where we were working in tiny organizations with people who are closely related to us. That's a huge social change. Related to that is these technologies that we're all using in our job. And by the way, a big piece of how we measure peace is with these technologies that have more and more sensors in them that can detect when we do a social behavior. I sent you a text message, yeah. you sent me an email, I said, okay, let's meet at this time at this place. And we moved right there from awareness to attention to communication to coordination. You know, we're already saying, let's meet at this time at this place. Let's look, look, use Outlook and Google Maps. Yeah. Those are coordination technologies, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. So, and then I used Uber to get here. And so I went squarely into the, let's actually do an economic exchange to make this happen, you know? Yeah. Um, so the point here is those technologies are augmenting our cognition yes. in a massively important way because before those technologies I never could have discovered my Uber driver and you couldn't yell mm. loud enough for me to hear you in Menlo Park from yeah. San Francisco yeah. and, and so you know none of this could have happened without those augmenting technologies. Um, lost my train of thought. On the, uh, but the history of punishment systems. Okay, and, okay. Yeah, so, yeah. One of the effects of that really narrow cognitive bandwidth is the only kind of thing that sticks in the human brain across time. You know, we're, we're basically, we suck at associating cause and effect, especially over time. But if there was a threat involved, my brain is much more likely to remember it than if it was a reward. And, and so yeah, as yeah, we're moving yeah. into from hunter-gatherer bands of 100 people or so, 150 people, 
into small, um, what we would call towns these days, but the beginning of agri agrarian societies, yeah, the beginning yeah. of the old city-states. Um, you need a way to coordinate the behavior of a thousand people, 10,000 people in a way that you can't do with in a hunter-gatherer band. But if you look at the yeah. basic methodology of coordinating behavior at all of those different scales, from family to band to village to town to city-state to country, for all of history so far, it's been punishment because punishment is what works. Punishment is what sticks in our brains. You know, if you smack me today for something I did a year ago, if it hurts bad enough, I'll remember next year, next time I have the opportunity, don't do that, you'll smack me. If you reward me now, today, for something I did a year ago, I don't even know what the thing was that I did a year ago, right? It's, it's uh, mm. and this is the problem of HR reviews, by the way, we won't even go into that. But <laughs> You're getting a raise now for something you did a year ago. What was that thing again? How did I do it? Why, why did I do it? You know, hard to replicate, right? Human brain doesn't do that well. Rewards can be extraordinarily powerful if you can deliver them instantly. They have a half-life that decreases in seconds. Okay, interesting. So the reward needs to come immediately after the good behavior exactly. in order for there to be a, a, a the highest amount of realization that that was a good behavior. Right. So, okay. so we're now moving into a power dynamic where not only nation states, not only companies, not every, not only every social organizational structure we have out there, but individual people in their relationship with themselves and their families everywhere else can start thinking in terms of how do I design an augmenting technology that can sense when I do a behavior and instantly reward me when I do the behavior I want to do. So, because that so changes human behavior far more effectively than punishment. So, okay, so we have Mark Nelson is walking down the street in the city and computer vision is watching Mark Nelson with a unique identifier. Yep. And as Mark, you know, crosses, jaywalks across the street, literally his... I'm assuming we're in China now. Yeah, <laughs> his wallet loses $40 or whatever. Right. Um, Wow, and then if you um, maybe help, help someone out, help someone get across the street um, that was struggling across the street, maybe you gain a dollar. Yeah. And you get that right away, yeah. these good and bad. Yeah. yeah. You're assuming it needs to be a dollar. And, yeah. and here's the shift from oh, the uh, extrinsic to intrinsic okay. motivations and a bunch of other things. Yeah. Okay. Um, dollars probably are not the most useful rewards here. Uh, I'm talking at the scale of a tiny little thing that triggers a bit of dopamine in the brain. And by those tiny little things, I mean things you're really familiar with. If you played Angry Birds, you know, when that piggy pops, when you see that little graphic on the screen of the piggy popping or the pillar falling down or any of, or you hear the sound effects, that's enough of a reward for your brain to go, that was cool, I have control of an environment I didn't have control of before, I should do this again. That's the level of reward I'm talking about. And wow. that's a lot better than getting, you know, fired by your boss a year later for something you did last quarter, you know? The, um, I'm not saying it's all good. I'm not by any means saying this is oh, all good. Oh, interesting. So when Ron said good morning this morning, which normally doesn't, <laughs> when he said, <laughs> that's right, that's right. So when he said that, then there was a moment for me, literally yeah. in my mind of, yeah, of you got a, a little shot of dopamine spike. there and a little shot of oxytocin there. Yeah. And that's enough for your brain to go, that was nice. I sh whatever I did to make him say good morning like that, I should do that again. I'll you know? make up for it tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds so miserable. 
Don't worry, man. Don't get used to that. Yeah. Good morning. But here's yeah. why the augmenting technology works: is because once you have sensors embedded that can detect when the behavior happens, and you can deliver the tiny reward right away, that's far cheaper and far easier to do than figuring out who should be punished and why and how much and, and how are we going to pay for it and all that stuff. And so as, as a reorganizing principle Damn. for society, that's a very big deal. We're shifting yeah. towards something that is much more reward driven. Interesting. And that has costs and that has some unintended consequences. It's not all good, but it is a big shift. Yeah, instant reward yeah. for good behavior. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, this is some hard, like, you know, I always wonder when we're just a bunch of like, you know, third graders playing with godlike technologies. So, yeah, I hope it, uh, hope it goes well. The, yeah. <laughs> I mean, one of the differences here is that in most of our environment for the last, I don't know, 20,000 years at least, you know, um, those rewards have just been happening to us from the environment. When they happen, it's like, oh, I got a little more food. Ooh, that berry tasted nice. You know, they're kind of random. And I mean, that's what's been driving coevolution and so on. But we were not designing the rewards of the reward systems, and we were not given the opportunity to think intentionally and consciously as designers, what are the behaviors that I really appreciate that I would like you to do? Could I co-design with you something that I could create and afford to give a reward when you do Jeez. stuff that I like and vice versa? And can we begin to be intentional and deliberate about that? That's where we're at now. So if I'm, when I'm born into the world and I have aligned myself with some sort of like a divine purpose that I believe is my me most deepest meaning in life, then I can align myself with this good behavior incentivization system that observes my trajectory towards this North Star and, and rewards me as I go towards it. And yep. You're already doing that to some degree. <sighs> we're talking about a shift on the slider here. God, this is nuts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So nuts. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how like indigenous people think of what and then they think about this. Here's, kind of here's stuff. the you know the, the good news and the bad news is this stuff's been democratized. Any twelve year old kid in their bedroom can build an app that does this, and it can change the behavior of twenty million people in three weeks. And no king or emperor or pope yeah, yeah. or anybody has ever had that kind of power before. Yeah, yeah, see, that's the thing. Yeah, okay. And that scares the crap out of me. Yeah, that does scare me. He scares the crap out of you. It scares the shit out of them. The kings, the queens, and the popes, and the, you know, the rulers. Also the kids who didn't realize that, you know, they were just trying to get more people to play their game or whatever, you know, or get some people to download their app. They were not necessarily thinking, how do I change the behavior of 20 million people on the other side of the planet? Okay, so peace is a set of behaviors. What is that? What is the set of behaviors? Positive pro-social behaviors, and, and we're particularly interested in those mutually beneficial kind, because those, we can keep reinforcing those. Positive pro-social, mutually beneficial. Yeah. Okay. And we've got something that we call the engagement framework that I'm happy to send you for a graphic. You can share it on the website. But basically, we stack rank them, and, and we, we bundle cat, uh, technologies and categories that match those, um, that are basically augmenting technologies for increasing communication for increasing, uh, I mean, we can do this really quickly. Um, communication technologies, Skype, Zoom, email, all of these things. Clearly, you know, at least they enable communication probably more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, coordination technologies, uh, Outlook, calendar, maps, all of these things. Yeah. Those help us coordinate our behavior to be at the same place at the same time and yeah. do cool stuff together. Um, cooperation technologies, Google Docs, 
Um, yeah. You know, when we can jump into a document together and come up with a, an outline like this for what should we talk about and webcasting. Yeah. 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 Okay. okay. Um, any, anything where people can actually begin to work together. Okay. And, and then full on collaborative, mutually beneficial. Those are things like Uber, where, where, hey, we're over the threshold, we're actually generating economic activity, it enables trade, and it enables the transformation of our group differences that would otherwise cause problems into a sustainable, mutually yeah. beneficial trade relationship asset <clears throat> that we now uh, are less likely to break, Donald Trump aside. I won't even go into American politics. Whoa. Okay, so we will do an like 102 class 102 on peace innovation and peace technology where we can also have some of these um, graphics and breakdowns as well um, how about peace design have we been talking about that we have been yeah and we've been talking about it a little bit from the unintentional side um, you know nobody at uber said hey let's design a peace tech company at Airbnb, Joe Gebbia did have the intuition early on, this might be peace technology, you know, and hey, maybe this could measurably increase peace in the world. And he was right. Um, but um, the good news here is any company now that is using any of these technologies in their daily operations, you can measure how much positive engagement did we increase between the marketing department and the engineering department today in our email. You can measure how much positive engagement did we increase today between men and women on the planet in our company today. And the, the first, um, the, piece, the Hague Peace Data Standard version 0.1 beta, that paper that Rosanna and I and a um, uh, 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 colleague from Australia, um, Laurie, blanking on Laurie's last name, anyway, the three of us published more than a year ago now. We used bank data looking at gender engagement in this big bank between men and women on the chat platform so that that company could say, look, actually, our metadata from our chat platform shows that in our organization, we're creating this many positive episodes of engagement between men and women at this level of quality, et cetera, et cetera. You can go into a great deal of depth there, and an organization can at least benchmark and say, okay, we're at least this good today. Can we get better? And now when Deloitte comes in and says, you know, we've got an intervention to sell you to increase gender engagement, they can say, great, let's test it, and let's test it against the one from McKinsey or whoever else and, and see which one actually yeah. really does make the most improvement. So we can create these digital twin simulations of peace tech. Yes, Lori Lockley was our other co-author. Sorry, Lori. Lori Lockley. Yeah. I was, I was going to mention this, the Dunbar limit. You're there. We're all there. I hit my cognitive limit. <laughs> I mean, you've met Nicole and Victoria and Margarita and the whole team. Uh, you know, I'm a tiny um, part of a composite person You're a with my name with, that I'm kind yeah. of the face of, but there are a lot of the brains behind it. So, yeah. Yes, yes, the team. So, so we can do things like create like a digital twin simulation of what an organization's internal structure is of relationships, yes. Yes. and then we can deploy a... Right. Um, a piece tech into that simulation, see how it affects it yes. in a day, and then maybe try that in the physical world. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and a big part of what we do with organizations is say, we can teach you how to do this yourself internally so that you can design your own interventions yeah. with each other, for each other, by each other, in, inside your organization, as yeah. well as easily pulling in best practices from others. That's great. And so, what would one of those look like? Oh, we've got all, all sorts of... Um, custom things that they come up with for themselves. Um, 
now I get under NDA with some of our industry partners and we so can, on. But, we, yeah, um, we can skip and then we can always yeah, revisit as they can as they can come up to the surface. Yeah, We'd love to essentially, share. we've got we've got a process, and here's here's where I think we get into the ethical deployment of these things. For us to drop in and say, "Hi, we're from Stanford. We have a great solution for you here. You know, buy and deploy our peace tech." would be disastrous. That's why you come in potentially and learn, ask them questions, learn about them Absolutely. and say, have you considered something Absolutely. like this? What would that look like for you? Yeah, and we have a very systematic process to come in and say, let us teach you how to design this stuff for each other. For each other, yeah. Because the only expertise we really have is teaching people how to build and design this stuff and how to ethically deploy it. That yeah. turns out to be far more ethical as well. I love it. And for us getting more peace tech out in the world, it, it gets many more practitioners building this stuff. And that's the, um, the, the Hague Peace Data Standard is the ability to go and help these companies. First of all, measure their peace footprint measure and eventually footprint. Um, start getting recognition for it. And then last but definitely not least, eventually start getting paid for it. Uh, this because is so damn cool. They're building that relational infrastructure, you know? And I guess this is sort of the last surprising finding from our research is... Oh, I'm sure the bottom line increases then. Of absolutely. The it, it massively improves More organizational performance, yeah. uh, improves your ability to uh, attract talent, uh, improves the retention on that talent, yeah. um, creates a much better working environment where better stuff gets done. relationships between absolutely. that talent and the productivity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you see organizational improvement as a result. Yeah. And Whoa. Yeah. Whoa, yeah, that's so cool. Okay, and then um, let's get, give the old example. So peace entrepreneurship, what, are, what, are, what were the old companies doing? Well, you gave the new company examples. Yeah, right? so yeah. I mean, peace entrepreneurship would be somebody today, like Joe Gebbi a decade ago, saying, hey, I actually want to build technology that does measurably increase peace in the world. And we work with and incubate um, those folks, uh, some working directly with the lab here at Stanford, some working with our uh, city labs around the world, and so on. The, the big aha here though is now that we can measure peace behavior like this, the surprise is where it's happening because most of it is happening in the workplace. The, the place where most of us spend most of our time interacting with people really different from us is eight hours a day, five days a week at the office. Interesting. And the place where most of us are willing to go back and try again even if it kind of sucked today is at the office because we're getting paid for it. Yeah. And it turns out far more episodes of interaction between people who are very different from Happen each other at the workplace. are happening in the workplace environment Yeah, there's a high concentration else. of people exactly. and diversity versus exactly. going back home, you're just with your family members, Precisely. maybe a couple of their friends. Yeah. So the workplace is where we're all getting our exec ed on how to get along with people who are really different from each other. <laughs> That's so funny. That's where we're getting our education, yeah, yeah. for how to get yeah. along with people. And Interesting. Nobody thinks. And some oh, school, probably. It's a school too. When we're well, growing you, up. I yeah. mean, some of that yeah. early days is hopefully what allows you to function in function the workplace. Function in the workplace. Yeah. 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 Okay. But um, but yeah, no, nobody's thinking. Oh, where's where's the most peace happening in the world? Oh, it's happening in the office. But yeah. it is. You know, once you can measure it, you start realizing actually, yeah, that is where it's happening. Damn. And so it's that's why we. View. Yeah. It's a whole new view on relationships between people and the peace data that's actually coming from that that's invisible. Yeah. So there yeah. was, to build these metropolises, to build all of the things that we're so grateful for, shelters, food, water, electricity, internet, all these things that, that there were so many peace relationships that yes. they made it's that. It's all built on peace, peace. in some ways, yeah. And it's easy that. to look back in history and see the conflict because most of history is just a record of the conflicts. And the, the 
all the cooperation is largely invisible all the because our brains are wired to notice to the, look at the, the conflicts violence. and the violences. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, there's a big plundering happening. Of course, that's a problem, but at the same time, it's like um, whatever. The multi-hundred years later, we're not thinking about the um, the thousands of people that had to work together to move those resources, exactly. construct that design, and make it and livable. to undo all the damage that came from that one and episode of big plundering and yeah, the exactly. damage. Yeah. And then. Um, and then so most of the piece is happening in the workforce, which is, wow, wow, nuts. Yeah. And right now, that. companies are not getting any recognition for that. And so that progression yeah. of, first of all, start measuring it there, that will give us a big sample of most human pro-social activity right there. Second of all, start giving recognition to organizations for the amount of peace they're creating because that's building that social, that relational infrastructure, that social fabric. That's where we're actually building social fabric. And then third of all, change market signals because that stuff is really valuable, so let's get them paid for that. And then that makes it investable, so that those big pools of capital in capital markets, you know, the pension fund that is, has to pay for your pension, the insurance fund that has to pay your life insurance and your health insurance, they can put that money into more of this stuff that builds that relational infrastructure as opposed to going, crap. Um, the only thing that I'm actually allowed to invest in that gets the returns I have to invest in is something that is building cruise missiles or whatever, you know? Um, yeah. That's a deep structural problem. That's a whole other episode to go into. Okay, and just on the, on the quick on, the quick on <laughs> peace finance and peace investments. Yeah. That kind of led us a little into that, That's yeah. exactly where we're going here, is, is um, by, by creating not just a, an oh, hey, you should get recognition and you as an individual and your team and your department and your company and your industry should all be getting recognition for this stuff and because now we can measure it. It isn't just that, it's beyond recognition, you should be getting paid for this. So it's about creating a price signal for the value of peace in order to make it investable. A price so signal can, for the value of peace to make it investable. Yes. Okay. okay. so that we can divert capital flows away from those things that right now are let me just give an example. I, I think it was uh, m more than 10 years ago now, the Gates Foundation was investing in uh, anti-malarial stuff in West Africa, if I recall correctly. And if I get the details of this wrong, sorry, Bill and Melinda, but uh, roughly it's like this. Um, and they, you know, it's a foundation, so they have all this principle that they invest in capital markets and they earn a return and then they take a little bit of that return and give it in grants every year. And they were giving the grants to try and mitigate malaria spread in West Africa. And their principal was invested in oil companies that were causing a bunch of chaos in West Africa that was making the, the interventions they were doing with their interest really impossible to deploy in West yeah, Africa yeah. or really difficult to deploy. And so, and it's just a, it's a, it's a really basic calculation about how much capital you have at work when you've got this much capital at work drilling for oil in the Niger River Delta and this much capital, the interest on it, available, some portion of that, some tiny portion of that available to try and reduce the spread of malaria there. And it's really hard to get people in there because there's a civil war being fought right there because people are drilling for oil and people are fighting over the oil. It's, you just look at the budgets and go, this amount will always cancel out this amount every time, every time. And so what we need is a systematic way to divert a bunch of this into these sectors that are structured as for-profits instead of NGOs, instead of foundations, instead of philanthropy, instead of charity, because philanthropy and charity is not where peace is happening. 
It might be where some violence reduction is happening, but it's not where peace is happening. It's the for-profit workplace where peace is happening because that's what's paying the bills yeah. for us to all get that executive education on how to learn to work together with people who are different. different than us. And by definition, different is up and down your supply chains, up and down your distribution channels. All you gotta do is you know, meet your customer and you meet different real quick. Yeah. And for our next sit down, we'll touch more on these subjects and we'll touch on the mimetics, uh, genetics conversation as well. Well, I'm excited. I'm looking I think there's to like that. six conversations that I want to have with you now and we barely scratched good, the surface good. of the first one. But yeah. Good. I'm yeah. glad. I'm glad. There's, I think there's um, a good amount of these games of what we call tennis to play still yeah. um, and to unpack more of these good wisdoms. Um, quick on the way out, we ask our guests if they think that there are, did you come into this earth suit to play on this planet from somewhere beyond this physical world? Hmm. I don't know. Um, it seems very unlikely to me that we are the most supreme beings around. Uh, it also seems very unlikely to me that whatever supreme beings there are particularly resemble the things that different religions call God. Mm -hmm. That seems highly unlikely to me. Mm. Um, I, I think uh, the kind of organisms, the kind of superorganisms that I'm really interested in are, are the kinds of which we are to them as one of my skin cells is to me. Those are the superorganisms yeah. that I'm interested in. The as above, so below, yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'm yeah. interested in playing my role really well in that superorganism so it can be a little bit better as yes. a result of me being one of the cells in it. You're well, going so. one more level macro up yeah. of the view of the eight yeah. billion of us yeah. at play on the planet and right. how we can be right. a good cell in the equation. Exactly. Yeah. And I strongly suspect that those kind of superorganisms exist and I think they're all around us. We just don't, we haven't learned biologically and ecologically how to notice them yet, but I, you know, I think the city of San Francisco, like every other city on the planet, is a living organism in which yeah. you, you and I are, are, you know, we three ourselves. Um, yeah. And we come and go just like, you know, different pieces of our organisms come and go every day. And that's, that's part of what I mean when I say we're all food. Yeah, you yeah. Know? That this bread cup, what do you call it? Bread, bio crumbs, bio bread. Bio, bio crud, actually. Bio I think crud. Yeah, 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 we're yeah. food for something else, you know? Rack part of baby. All of us who live in a city, one of the reasons we live there is that to, su to some degree, biologically, that city ate us, is eating us. It's, it's also feeding us, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. and so in, in this sense, everything is food and we should think we're an exception. Like and that. that's not a bad thing. Yeah. And then, are we in a simulation? That one I got no idea on. Um, it seems very likely to me, but, um, you know, I, I'm not, I've read Nick Bostrom's work, I've read some of the other team out of um, Berkeley um, AI Center and so on. Um, it seems perfectly possible, but I don't have enough data either way to say one way or the other. Yeah. And then what is the most beautiful thing in the world? Man, for me it's transcendence. For me, the experience at all sorts of different points in my life of being part of something bigger than myself um, and, and feeling so privileged and so gratitude, so grateful to, so full of gratitude just to be here to be able to have those experiences, yes. you know? 
Um, so the thing that I've been looking myself in the mirror, the question I've been asking myself since before I met Tim Brown and learned that questions are the really important thing, but even as a kid, I used to look in the mirror and ask myself, how can I create the most good in the world for the greatest number of people as far into the future as possible? And that's been kind of a mantra for me. I've expanded that now to I'm interested in all living things, not just, yes. not just humans. Yes. Um, and I, I suspect that the boundary between us and other living things is much more artificial than we would like to think. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, uh, as somebody who has now, I got ill when I was in Haiti 20 years ago with a bunch of uh, GI tract problems. Uh, and you suddenly start being really aware of your GI flora and fauna and the trouble and the problems it can cause when it's not working and the amazing benefits that work really well when it is working so you don't notice it. Yeah, yeah. But when you pay attention to it, you realize yeah. most of the stuff that is working for me in here that is helping me live literally day by day is not me. Mm. Doesn't have my DNA, doesn't have, it's not me at all, you know? <laughs> There's this nice partnership going on here yeah. and when that partnership gets disrupted, my health goes to, to hell, yeah. you know? So, yeah. um, and then you start realizing, well, then where's the boundary between me and not me? Because yeah. there's a bunch of not me here yeah. that I can't survive without. So it seems pretty fundamentally me, actually. It's just different DNA. So, yeah. 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 I love that. Transcendence. I love that. Wow. Oh, such a good episode. Cool. One of my faves. It's been super fun. Thank my you. My great pleasure. Thank you. My great pleasure. Thank I'm you. looking forward to coming back. Thank you. Thank you yeah. for all the great work. We look forward to a My long, pleasure. beautiful partnership with yeah. the Peace Innovation Lab. You know, we need your help figuring out how to communicate this stuff better, how to get these ideas out in the world better. Thank you. Um, how to make it. it more engaging for folks. I hope this was interesting for your audience. Yeah, so. We're super on it with you. Love it. Pleasure. Love it. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We greatly appreciate it. We'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments below on the episode. Let us know what you're thinking. Check out the links in the bio, peaceinnovation.stanford.edu, also peaceinnovation.com. Go and talk more about this with your friends, your families, coworkers, people online on social media. Get talking more about peace innovation, peace technology, visualizing this peace data, all the things that we talked about today. And support the incredible organizations that you believe in, like the Peace Innovation Lab. Support cool organizations like Simulation so we can keep doing our thing as well. You can find our links in the bio below to our Patreon, PayPal, Cryptocurrency, our Design Cool Merch and Get Paid links down there as well. Shout out to Ron Vagas for producing and directing. Thank you very much, Ron. Thank you, Ron. And go and build the future, everyone. Manifest your dreams into the world. We love you very much. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you soon.